Welcome to a Manager Tools Hall of Fame podcast. This guidance is about how to prepare, write, and deliver performance reviews. Today, we deliver part two. On the next two Wednesdays, we will deliver parts three and four. But don't worry, you will still get the normal guidance on other topics every Sunday. These casts are in addition to our normally scheduled podcast. We intend to make this a recurring special series every year to remind everyone of the basics that are easy to forget at a time of the year when most folks need it. Welcome to the Man Tools Podcast for Monday, December 19th, 2005. Hello, this is Michael Lozan, and welcome back. Today, my partner Mark Horseman and I continue our discussion on performance reviews. Now, if you're new to the podcast, welcome. And you may want to go and listen to last week's show before continuing with this one. It'll make a lot more sense to you if you do. Last week, we discussed collecting performance data. Today, we discuss evaluating data and writing the review. In the coming weeks, we'll get to actually delivering the review. But before we go on, I want to give some props to Kevin Williams at the Middle Management Lobotomy Podcast. Kevin's mentioned manager tools a couple of times, and as one of the first podcasts that I regularly listen to, I want to acknowledge Kevin and his efforts. If you haven't listened to the Middle Management Lobotomy podcast in the past, I put a link uh, to his podcast on our blog roll and suggest you go uh, take a listen to it. So with that, let's continue on with our discussion on performance reviews. The next step is evaluating the data you've gathered. Um, and we feel even this is even harder because it's really, again, it depends on the company and the role and so on. But there are three steps we do suggest everybody go through before you actually write and fill out the form. And, and I will tell you that if you do these well, these are ones you'll remember as being most helpful. You got a big pile of data in front of you, and the first thing, as you've been gathering the data and as you're thinking about it, what does this mean for Joe, this guy I'm evaluating? What does it mean for Terry? What does it mean for Jane? The first thing is begin with the end in mind, just like Stephen Covey says. Lay everything you've got down and ask yourself, what is the core message that I want to send to this person? What is the one thing I wanted to learn from this evaluation? What do I not want him to miss? And then don't lose sight of that idea as you evaluate, as you continue to evaluate and you write. Make sure that message comes through. Now, I'm not suggesting that, that means that's the only message. You don't want to say, well, I want to send a message that he's good, so therefore I'm going to take out everything that's bad. No, that's not it at all. Uh, there's both going to be good and bad in probably every evaluation. Um, but, but so often what happens is, we go through each part of the form as we rush to write. We go through each part of the form, and then when we get done, we're kind of like, oh, what does that say? Well, each part is right, but the overall intent or the overall um, message is very muddied. And it, I found it's very, very helpful uh, when you're actually delivering the review to have a clear upfront paragraph or two that describes what the key takeaway should be of the meeting that you're having. And I tell you, if you do not tell people what your key message or takeaway is, they won't get it. Um, quite frankly, when you deliver a review, the only thing you can be sure of, well, it's a little, little pop quiz, Mike. What is the one piece of information that everybody can be sure, every manager can be sure the employee gets in an annual or in a performance review? 
Mike, forget about the form. Forget about the review for a minute. Think about the meeting you have with the employee, the words you say, what they're coming in to hear from you, what they're hoping to find out. When they get done with the meeting, what is the one thing you tell them that they will not forget? Well, their raise, their merit increase, or whatever Absolutely you call right. it. And if you're not careful, that's what they'll remember. And if you don't have a clear message about the performance particularly when the raises are smaller or the buckets are narrowly defined between top performer and middle performer or almost top performer, and there's a 7% raise or a 3% raise or a 6% raise. If you're not very clear about what your message is, you'll spend, they'll spend all their emotional energy thinking about, did I get a 6 or did I get a 7% raise? And why did I get a 6? And boy, can't he see that I nearly killed myself this year for him. I think I deserve a 7. Yeah, or give them a 1%. They'll remember that too. Oh, they'll remember that one. Yeah. Okay, so that's the first thing. Begin with the end in mind. Sketch yourself some notes as you're looking at the data. What is the key message I want to get across? And make sure you don't lose that to include a prefatory paragraph or two in the the meeting itself where you talk about what the message is. Um, Second thing, good idea to remind yourself of common evaluation errors um, as you evaluate the data before you put pen to paper. There are many of them that psychologists can talk to you about, six or seven or eight that are sort of semi-famous, and oh, maybe in a longer podcast we'll talk about all those things. But we believe the two that are most common are, first, the halo effect, or it's opposite, the horns effect. That's one. And, you, and that just simply means you like or dislike the person in general, and then you generalize to every part of their performance based on that one perception. Um, you know, a good example might be you like me working for you. I tend to be pretty smart and pretty aggressive. And so therefore, overall, I do real well. And that causes you to look overlook the fact that I can be abrasive at times with, with some of my coworkers. And that needs to be included as a developmental opportunity for me. Um, so that would be a halo effect giving a skew to my evaluation. Um, the other effect that I think is very important is the similar to me effect. And basically, if someone resembles you, and I'm not just talking about appearance, I'm not not going toward race or gender here, but if they're similar to you in drive or personality or desires or career path or background, this gets layered over their whole evaluation, and they tend to do better on the evaluation than they should. And, and, And the opposite is true as well. That person has a very different background than me. They tend to think differently than me, so therefore they can't. They're not going to do as well overall. Um, there is very little evidence um, that race plays any factor in evaluations. It's very, very, very slight um, based on a study a number of years ago, but it was not statistically significant. Um, there's very little evidence that gender plays any difference, makes any difference in evaluations. About the only thing that tends to be systematically proven in evaluations is that younger managers, newer managers, tend to be tougher than more senior managers, hmm. um, more, more seasoned managers, if you will. That's about the only bias in terms of broad biases and those kind of things that tend to be true. Um, but individual common evaluation errors are the two that are biggest, I think, for most managers are the halo effect and similar to me effect. So just take a moment and think about that. And if you look, and, and this leads to a final point, which is when you're done evaluating everybody, you should look at where everybody ranks um, and put them on a bell curve, if you will, and who's my top person, who's my bottom person, who's in the middle, and so on. And then look and see it, when you when you cut it up by race and by gender and by age and by background and by personality, make sure there's no trends that stand out too obviously. If all the people who are friendly and outgoing tend to be at the top, but the data suggests in terms of numbers and, and uh, the objective data, 
are spread pretty evenly, you may be guilty of a similar to me effect, um, and you want to be cautious about that. And that's really the third point we want to make is a distribution analysis. Um, see how they fit um, and, and in terms of a distribution of bell curve analysis. And believe it or not, keep in mind that a majority of your team is likely to be in the middle of the bell curve because that's the way bell curves are structured. I know every manager tells me all the time, Mark, Mike, I, I kid you not, I, to- I talked to one manager a couple of years ago at a very large company who told me, Mark, the worst person on my team is better than the best person on any team. That's how, that's how loyal I am to my people. <laughs> And I said, well, unfortunately, your loyalty is not what's being evaluated on this form. Uh, it's better to reduce any skew that you have now and let the data drive your evaluation. And then if you feel like there's a misunderstanding or it's really not accurate, then go back and mine the data again to see if you can justify a higher ranking for somebody if you need it. Don't start out with everybody at the top and then let the data try to drive you down because that will be indicative of a, an evaluation. Yeah, and I can error. tell you from years of managing managers of managers of managers that the argument that your managers Ugh. or your people are, all of them are better than every other person within the entire organization is, uh, it gets you absolutely nowhere. It brings yeah. into question your your judgment as a manager. So it, it don't go there. Yeah. And you know what? In fact, I, I, I listened to a VP once, Mike, tell me, Mark, you know, I hear that all the time. I have the simplest solution in the world. I say to him, okay, Rob, great. Um, and you've got, this is your bucket for raises. You're not going to get any more. You decide how to apply it. And, and, and then this person said, and Rob, if you give it to everybody equally, and Joe and Terry, who you know are your true top performers, even though everybody else is real close to them, if Joe and Terry get 2% because you're trying to protect everybody in your team, and over on the team next to yours, Bob and Jane get 5%, you have just short given short shrift to your two top performers. You're going to have to figure out how to divvy up this bucket of, of uh, increases, and and the, the best way to do that is to think about the bell curve. Yeah. It- in my experience, people evaluate how well they've done. It doesn't matter what you've written on the paper. In the end, they judge it based upon the raise they get and the raise yep. they get relative to their peers. And this, in my experience as well, there is nothing more difficult for managers to do than distribute a fixed amount of money across their team. And the yeah. number of times I've seen where people have dis- done this uh, peanut butter approach and just spread it evenly across the yep. organization is um, it's incredible. And it is absolutely damning to the organization when you do that. Yeah. It, the, the sad thing about it is it's, uh, it's much easier to do that if you haven't done feedback and coaching out throughout the year where you haven't given them a lot of, a lot of uh, um, insight into how they're doing. And, of course, one of the things we've talked about before, we, we're not making a big deal out of it in this cast, but they ought to be get, you ought to be doing reviews on everybody, not with this much detail, but you ought to be doing re- annual reviews on everybody, performance reviews, each quarter so that they're prepared to hear what you're going to tell them at the end of the year. But the danger of giving everybody equal is that it demotivates your top performers and motivates your bottom performers. It essentially says keep doing what you're doing to the bottom performers because whether you like it or not, people may not – it may be, quote, private, but let me tell you, your top performers are going to walk out of there being ticked. Your bottom performers are going to be out there going uh, – going to be going, man, I, I got the middle. I did fine. And so they continue to do what they do. 
And then when you try to give them different feedback in February, they're going to say, wait, last year I got the same raise as everybody else. Why all of a sudden are you picking on me? And the top performers say, look, if you're going to pay everybody else the same amount, why should I give you my best? I'm going to either, A, move down to the level that, that is commensurate with the pay you're giving me, or two, go to a different company or a different boss who's going to pay me what I'm worth. Can you think of a worse situation than a manager encouraging their worst people to stay and encouraging yeah. their best people to leave? That, yep, that's, that's exactly, exactly what, what happens, and it's I've, yeah. I've seen it happen. It's it's. Ugh. And I hate to be a pain, but i got to tell you, the reason why they do that is because managers are afraid. Because they're afraid to have that tough conversation to say, you didn't perform as well as I'd like, and so while the mean uh, raise that the organization is giving out this year is 3%, I can only justify giving you 1%. And I'm doing this for two reasons. One is a reflection of your performance last year and to encourage you to do better next year. I want to work with you. I want to do better. And your raise is 1%. Okay, so that's that's everything on evaluating the data, and now we actually have to write the review. Um, and we apologize; we don't have everybody's review forms to give you individual individual guidance. Although, you know, when I consult with companies and we start talking about improving performance, I, I one of the things I ask for is let me see your annual review, so that I can be talking about that throughout the year and coaching managers on how to talk about it, so that we're delivering a consistent message. Um, there are some things you can do to be more effective, even in a largely generic sense. Um, and, and the primary thing is the key point to keep in mind when you're writing a review, when you're actually filling out the form, whatever form it is, and you're making your case on that form, is determine what information you have best conveys the core message that you came up with when you were evaluating the data. Now, that's likely to be a combination of behaviors, and their results against goals and performance against goals. Behaviors aren't exactly performance. Performance is sort of aggregated behavior, and results is aggregated performance, if you will. Um, again, I want to go back. This isn't to suggest that if, if, if performance is poor, you're only going to put bad examples go on the review. But the key is, does the preponderance of the information on the, on the form support your core message or key point? Um, and... This is a, a neat tip for a lot of managers. Keep in mind that you can't address everything that happened in the past year on the form, so you'll want to have all the data you collected with you in the review meeting to be able to elaborate in any area if you get pushback or people want to know more. More data is better, even if it's not on the form. So if somebody challenges you, you can say, well, that's the example I put on the form, but I actually have six more here, Joe, that'll tell you really where I think you stood. And I think if you put all these together, it'll give you a clear sense why I said what I did in terms of your ranking in that particular area. Um, now, there are two writing techniques that, believe it or not, Mike, when I first suggested these to a manager, she said, that's the neatest thing I ever heard when it came to writing an evaluation. And I just kind of taken it for granted because I learned it from a great boss I had. Um, but but we're going to share two points, and we're, we're assuming that your review form is some combination of numerical ranking or a scoring system, plus some opportunity for written comments, usually not long essays, but some brief period where you get to elaborate upon a numerical ranking. And usually the, the, the guidance is if you give a very high ranking or a very low ranking, you're expected to give good data, to so good information, good commentary to support those rankings. And I know a lot of managers who actually put a lot of people in the center of the form simply because that means they don't have to write a lot. No. That's not a good reason to do so, although generally in a bell curve situation, it would not be unusual for there to be a lot of average performances against task, and that's fine. 
Um, so in those cases where some short amount of elaboration is required, we suggest you use one of these two techniques, depending upon how much room you have and how important the point is that you want to make. Uh, the first technique is called the SEER technique, S-E-E-R, and it's generally used in the places where you have more room and is probably better if you want to make a more important point. I generally try to use this one first, and then if I don't have room, I, I tend to go to the second uh, technique called the SUMX technique. So the SEER technique it, it stands for SEER, S-E-E-R, stands for Summarize, Elaborate, Example, Restate. So, for instance... Bob is my best customer service rep. He consistently seeds, exceeds every customer service rep standard in the company. He recently saved a difficult call after three other reps had failed to do so. He's an example we ought to put on training videos. So let's go back over that. Bob is my best customer service rep. That's a summary. He consistently exceeds every standard that the company puts on customer service reps. Okay, That's an elaboration. An example, he recently saved a difficult call after three other reps had failed to do so. And then a restatement. He's an example we got to put on every training video. Or if you want to be even more blunt on the restatement, Bob is my best customer service rep. Period. That's it. Four sentences. Okay. If you need um, a little, you have a little bit less room, or it's not quite as important point, um, then you use what's called the sum X method, which is essentially summarize and then give an example. Um, and and it's two sentences long. In the first sentence, summarize the behavior. And the second, give an example. So this would be as simple as, Bob is my best customer service rep. Recently, he saved a difficult call despite three other reps not being able to. Period. There it is. I will tell you that one of the neat techniques, writing techniques, this is an actual writing uh, skill, uh, one of the best ways to reduce the chances that people will disagree with your writing is to write short declarative sentences. And that means avoiding commas, avoiding ands, avoiding semicolons and colons and howevers. Um, the less commas you use in your review, the less other people will misunderstand, and the more likely your review will get the point across that you want to, and it will also pass muster with the organization and with HR. And with HR. Good writers hate commas, and good writing usually is considered good because it's clear. Commas tend to make people less concise, and uh, I've actually seen plenty of times where all I did was exchange comma with a period, and that's all you need to do. Hmm. It's simple, pretty simple. Um, now, again, there are a thousand different ways to do forms. I mean, it depends upon the form, and so we'd love to give you more guidance, but it just depends on your particular form. Um, again, now you're going back. Um, you want to overall think about whether or not your core message is accurate and whether you've supported it with enough data. If for some reason, as you look to the end of your form and you say, gosh, I'm just really not sure about what my final rating should be. Does, does this form support the final rating highly exceeds or usually exceeds or sometimes exceeds or meets expectations, whatever the case might be? If you feel like you're not really certain, um, if a final rating is called for, uh, a neat technique that I've seen some really savvy managers, particularly technical managers, use is to use a, a weighting factor when you look at the criteria that you're uh, using. Let's say there are seven criteria, and and then at the end there is, okay, tell them where they fit on the scale of doesn't meet expectations, usually meets, meets, exceeds, far exceeds, something like that. If there are seven criteria that are not weighted, in other words, they don't give you a formula to multiply 
part one by and part two by, then put your own weighting on them in order to see whether or not you're really justifying the far exceeds or the usually exceeds or the often exceeds. Um, so let, if you've got seven, maybe you look and you say two of those really are the ones I feel are most powerful. Well, okay. Weight those more heavily and take all seven and start off with, say, each one getting 15% of the total, which is close to 100%, and then add some to the ones you feel most important about and take some away from some of the others. Um, and, and that will be a way to you multiply the one score by the weighting and then add them all up, and that will give you an overall rating, and it'll tell you how you fit um, against the, the the new standard, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are two final steps that we recommend that are simple to understand and hard to do. Um, the first one is to take a strategic break. I am really surprised at the number of managers who ask me for help on a review. They send me an example, and I say, well, I'd, su- I'd change this, and they're about halfway done, and the next thing I hear, they're all the way done, and 15 or 20 minutes later, because they finally got excited, and they're burning through it, and they're done. Um, I see a lot of managers rushing at the end of the review process just to get done versus to support the purpose of the review. Don't do it. Schedule time now before the deadline of when you have to deliver these reviews to take a strategic break. A weekend is great. Don't work on weekends. Don't, Don't stay busy all week at work. Your January is probably relatively unscheduled right now. Don't fill up your time with stuff on during the week in January and then spend your weekends being miserable and making your families miserable by by putting it off and rushing at the last minute to get done by Sunday so you can deliver something on Monday. Schedule time now during the holidays, not when you're off with your family. When you're off, you should be off and not working. But schedule time when you're at the office, an hour here, two hours there to gather the data and to evaluate the data. And then schedule time during the work week in the early January um, to start writing the reviews. And then once you're finished writing it, it's going to be a draft. Think of it as a draft. Leave it aside for a weekend or for two or three or four week nights. Uh, step away from it. Let the review sit. And then when you come back to it and the final step and the final review, review it fresh and make sure that main point that you want to make is clearly made, that the, the numbers support whatever final re- final answer you came up with, um, that the data is supportive of the point you're trying to make. And lastly, you know, let's make sure that there are no spelling or grammar errors. And if you're wondering how to keep from there being spelling errors of words that are incorrect but in fact are spelled correctly, uh, most copy editors will tell you to review the document in reverse order. Read every word backwards. It's kind of hard to do, kind of confusing, but it really points out when you've got spelling or grammar errors. Um, And then lastly, you want to have all your supporting data available on a separate page or two, typed, handwritten, whatever the case might be, organized to make it easy for you to find what you need that didn't make it onto the final review form itself. And, you know, I think we've probably spent about an hour talking about this, Mike, but that essentially is, um, that. those are the steps. You've got you've to gather the data, collect the data, you've got to evaluate it, and you've got to write the review. And then, of course, the next step is to deliver it, but that's, we gotta, we're going to save that for another set of podcasts. Great. Super. Hey, let me ask you a question, though, before we go. Sure. Um, yeah. How about, how about using um, performance software? You know, there's, there's software you can buy out there to help you. Yeah. Perform um, performance reviews. What do you think about the use of those tools, and when might it be appropriate, and when would it not be appropriate to use something like that? 
Well, I know you've used it, um, or you certainly know more about them than I do. I've seen them used a couple times. I've never used them myself. Part of the reason for mine is it, I'm not the, necessarily the best person to ask because I like writing, um, and I'd prefer not to let a machine write for me. Um, what I have found is that when they are used, they are going back to that fundamental issue of we're going to write the review rather than actually doing the hard work of preparing the review. If you're really well prepared, writing is easy. Um, so uh, I generally don't recommend it because people use it as a crutch coming up with good words and phrases, adjectives and adverbs that are, ad- adverbs that are powerful. Um, but I'm not going to say to a manager, if you've got all your data together and you're just not a great writer, you're really struggling with writing, I don't think they'd be a bad idea. I just don't think they can make you a great reviewer if you haven't done your homework, collected the data, evaluated the data, and know exactly why you want to send John this message and Terry that message. Um, you can't make a great review just by writing it well. You might impress somebody in HR, um, so would I rule them out out of hand? No. In fact, for the right manager, I would say it'd be great. Um, but not every manager is the right manager to be using them. Yeah, I'm not. I, um, yeah, I've used them in the past. Matter of fact, one one particular year, that was how the entire organization did reviews, and it was more wow. of filling in the blanks than it was yes. using it to generate the text. Um, so. Um, it was useful in the sense of formatting the review and you know f- printing out the right. final document. Sure. That was pretty nice. In terms of use, in terms of generating the text, I f- I'm kind of kind of mixed. In some cases, it was useful to give you a, a structure for. I, I think it was very similar to like the the SEER technique that you talked about, right? And right. that it would kind of generate something in that form, and then you end up doing quite a bit of extensive editing. And in right. the end, I'm not sure it saved any time at all, although um, if somebody simply had the SEER technique, I think they would have been just as far down the path and probably saved a lot of time and created something more effective in the end. Well, I'll tell you, if I can, if we have time, um, this may end up on the cutting room floor, but but um, I'll tell you how I came up with the SEER technique, and then I've essentially adopted somebody else's SUMX method um, because people said they didn't want to write four sentences. I started reviewing a bunch of managers' evaluations, and I realized that what they were trying to do in a very small space was write a, tell a story. Look, I mean, I love stories. Stories are how we learn. It's an important part of our culture, but it's not. But reviews are not a place to tell a story. They literally would start at the beginning, right? And they would say, well, back in March, and I'm like, wow, there's back in March are three words we don't have time for in a quarter-inch vertical space on a review form. Um, and, and so what I, I had this flash of when, what other times am I asked by clients to teach them to communicate more concisely when a story, a whole story may not be effective. And what hit me on the head was the, the SEER technique is actually originally comes from how to answer questions if you've given a speech or if you're talking to the media. It, it's a way of structuring your answer that's clear and crisp rather than telling a story and getting any, a, a reporter irritated that you're not answering their question You've almost said, I don't want to tell you what you want to know. I want to tell you what I want you to know. And the SEER techniques makes it crisp and easy and fast, and yet it definitely delivers on, on the question. And so that I essentially adopted the SEER technique for this. And the SUMX is just a sort of a, a, a slimmed-down version of the SEER technique. Hmm. 
Okay. Uh, and, and usually what it boils down, you know, good writing, really, really good writing is incredibly concise. There's a famous story about the the two poets that were writing letters to each other. I'm sure somebody will write in and tell us who they were. One of them may have been Elizabeth Barrett Browning. And, and the note, or at the end of the note, one said, I'm, I'm sorry I wrote so long. I would have written you a shorter letter had I more time. Because a good writer would figure out a way yep. to cut out the extra words and get rid of commas and be more declarative and more more simple. So, so if you find yourself writing too long, jump on the Sear technique or the Sumex technique, and that will that will crisp up your writing and get rid of the commas. Good. Talk to me a little bit about the the balance between creating an objective review against some specific, well defined performance measures um, versus uh, a, a relative performance review i.e. performance of the individual relative to their peers in a similar position. <laughs> a lot of folks run into this kind of dilemma where if they were to be objective, the individual would get a less than um, average um, review in the sense that there's a lot of organizations where reviews are are, are pretty, um, what's the word I'm looking for, inflated. inflated. Yeah. Um, and if you were to give, and you as a more see a more careful manager were to give an objective review, you would in fact end up hurting a good performer. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's a, it, it, that's an answer we could talk about for probably half an hour. I'll give you kind of a high level. Um, I, at some point here, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do, but I don't recommend everybody do that. Um, one, one school of thought would be you would essentially accept whatever form, whatever natural inflation the company does, and you'll essentially write a review that goes to that. And, and you're essentially protecting your employee. Um, and the review is a, everybody in HR and your boss likes it and it fits and it's correct. While secretly you all know that probably you're not being as strongly positive about your top performers and you're probably not being as strongly negative on your bottom performers. Okay, that's the the necessary the, the inflated systems not only hurt people not only help people at the bottom they hurt people at the top because there's not a lot of room for them to be distinguished from people in the Absolutely. middle or the bottom of the evaluation. Yeah. Okay, so so one school of thought is you just write to the system and it's it's not I guess it's what you call relative um, in that you're writing relative to everybody else. Okay, I find that egregious but acceptable. Um, an, another technique, the other end of the spectrum, is to say, to heck with the system. I'm going to write absolutely objective evaluations. And I'm going to spread my team out if, in fact, they deserve to be spread out. And usually most teams do. No matter how good a manager I am, I've had good performers and bad performers. And I'm going to be very direct about it. I'm prepared a little bit, more than most, I'm certain, to poke my finger in the eye of the organization that says, well, we really can't give somebody that evaluation. Now, the reason I do that is because I've spent the last year gathering hordes of data that nobody else has. I've got all my one-on-one -on -one forms. I've got all the emails that I've sent, categorized, printed out in a form that's probably, I've probably got a file two inches thick, and I'm going to bury HR in data. Okay? I do this because not only do I want my bottom performers, not only do I want to send a message to the organization, my bottom performers really are that bad and I can prove it, but you're going to have a hard time taking away my top rating from my top performers, and therefore they're going to get a top raise and they're going to want to continue working for me because I'm the one that truly proves how good they are. Okay. Um, now, all that said, I don't recommend the vast majority of managers do that um, because... 
they usually don't have the data to support it, and they end up caving and accepting whatever HR or their boss wants. And look, if your boss, if your your evaluations don't fit into the larger bell curve, if you will, or the rankings that your boss has to produce, your boss will tell you change them. Period. And I'm not suggesting anybody get fired over writing an annual review. I think there's some middle ground that I can recommend. I, I really can't feel very strongly about recommending just go along with whatever the company says. Um, what I can recommend is what amounts to writing two reviews or satisfying the organization by making sure that whatever you write fits in with the, with the inflation, inflationary system that you have, but make sure that there is additional data covered to allow a poor performer and a top performer to know how well they're doing. Now, the problem with this is that it tends to hurt your top performers more than it hurts your bottom performers in that the bottom performers feel like they got a pass. You better make sure that when you give them the second part of the review, we say, look, this is a review. The system is inflated. If I told you, if I put down on paper how you actually did, you'd be over here, and I'm not prepared to tell you in one year that your 10 years of the company where you've been given above-average reviews are grossly inaccurate. Uh, I'm going to tell you that you've just had a warning shot fired across your bow. I've been your manager for one year. Um, or maybe I was your manager for 10 years, but this is the first year I'm telling you next year is going to be different, and I'm going to be collecting data to support my different evaluation next year. And you got to pass this year. But you're not going to have 10 more years of passes if I'm your boss for 10 more years. For my top performers, I'm going to say, you know what? The system is very inflated. Here are some things I'm going to do next year to make sure that you get highlighted a certain way, and I'm going to fight these particular ways for you, and I'm also going to put a memo in the record to the boss which says, you know, the system doesn't really give me a chance to evaluate Bob as truly great as he is because everything's inflated, and so here's some things I want your help on next year to give Bob the kind of visibility to top people that will help him or her um, be perceived more effectively to make it easier for me to give them a fully exceeds expectations, the top rating that our company gives. Um, now, I'm also very willing to to make relationships with everybody else in the organization and to know where HR's stand is, to talk to HR in advance, to give them three months notice in advance that one of my top performers is truly going to be a fully exceeds and this other person is a bottom performer and I want to give you some sense of the data that I've already got over nine months, like maybe I'll show them the third quarter quote annual reviews that I just got get done giving everybody and so you know I've got one of the guys that that if I gave him a review equivalent to the previous three quarters he would he would do terribly um, and I want you to know that I've got data to support that uh, I, I'm doing those kind of things all along because I don't consider the annual review to be just something that happens at the end of the year I consider it to be nothing more than the end result of a year's worth of work is that I mean I know that's kind of a long answer did I yeah no that makes a lot of sense so my, my experience is it's and my question was really more directed toward making sure that your your top people get a get an accurate performance review in the sense of they understand what they need to work on the following year, um, but doing it in a way in a manner such that they don't get unfairly punished by the system because it's not quote unquote a perfect review. Yeah, in that case where I've got a top performer who. You know, he's clearly doing well, and I think there's a chance that he could get the top possible number. But if I truly evaluating objectively, I might take him off of that, and that would be like the kiss of death if the form, if the system is that inflated. Then the last thing I want to do is going to hurt my top performers. I might take a different approach to one of my bottom performers, um, and it just depends on the system and how inflated it is, and so on. But the last thing I want to do is, is say to myself. 
I can't irritate anyone or, you know, I have to take care of everyone. So therefore I won't irritate anyone. The people I'm most interested in taking care of is my top performers. My bottom performers, you know, the top 20% of my staff tend to do 80% of my work, like it or not. If I get in trouble with my bottom performers a little bit, that's I'm okay with that. I don't want to be in trouble with my top performers. You know, in my 25 years of doing this or whatever, I, I you know, I've never lost any sleep about uh, the effects of an objective evaluation on my bottom performers. That's yeah. never bothered me. And clearly, my bottom performers, I want to encourage them to seek other forms of employment. So that, that's that's frankly you know, never bothered me. It's, yeah, it's you know it's when we talked earlier. People. When we talked earlier about this, um, I had a thought. One of the ways we started talking about this was, of course, the Army system. At the time when we were officers, there was an, a, a non-commissioned officer system, and we had a lot of great NCOs work for us. We were very lucky. Um, and um, the system was basically, they had to get 125 out of 125. The system was so inflated that if you get 124 out of 125 points, you must sure. have done something terrible, like yeah, inadvertently killed somebody. Yep. Um and and my thinking about that is if if an NCO worked for me and it really literally had done so poorly, but I couldn't justify firing them, I would say to them, I'm going to give you a 125 this year. If your performance stays the way it is, I will fight for you to get a 124 next year. And what they knew that meant was that would be the end of the career. What ended up happening was they – and what I would say is if I am your boss at your next review – and it's longer than 90 days from now, and I don't see any improvement, I'm going to follow my sword to give you a 124 rather than a 125. What would happen then is they would both get very motivated to do better, which is sometimes all that I needed, or they would figure out a way to leave my team, and that's a good thing too. Right, right. So... Yeah, I don't, I, you know, I, now I, I'm not going to help him go somewhere else. I, I think that's another problem with annual reviews of people. Well, let's send him over there. He hasn't been doing well here. Let's send him to another team. And nobody's willing to say, boy, he's really a problem. I would never, I'd fall on my sword and quit before I ever did that. I wouldn't say, right. well, I really want you to take this guy. He's really pretty good. Got some issues, but you'll like him. I wouldn't yeah, do no, it. I, I can't imagine you doing that. I'll tell you, and we're running out of, out of time here, obviously, but but one thing that's been terribly effective for me is I have always tried to spread out the curve. I've tried to have people at the bottom as well as people at the top. And the act of doing that has again encouraged the poor performers to leave and it's encouraged the, the best performers to, to stay. And my, my success in my career has largely been a result of the kind of people I have working for me. As and and, and even, let's be more precise, not just the kind of people you have working for you. Yes, of course that's true. But the kind of people who want to come to work for you, you end up getting a better recruiting class, if you will, every year internally because people know you take care of your top performers. Yeah, absolutely. There was a period of, for a couple years or so, in my old information technology job that it was, I, I think it's pretty safe to say that, um, Folks thought that if you wanted to get promoted to yeah. a director, if you wanted to be an executive in the company, then you'd go to work for, for Mike. Yeah. And the reason being is in the previous two years, the only executives, the only folks that got promoted to the executive ranks came out of my organization. Yep. And I will tell you that those folks absolutely deserved it. It wasn't a matter of my persuasive abilities to get them promoted, but it was a result of what you just said, which is you get people promoted, then the best people are going to come 
want to come work for you. I, and I the can, only way to maintain credibility, by the way, in terms of getting your best pe- people promoted, is you have to highlight the worst performers of, as, yes. as well. You can't yeah. put everybody up into the top quartile. It doesn't work. I, I remember working for you years ago when you were a client of mine, when we first started this whole discussion about manager tools and leader tools and so on. I remember saying to you once, you have got some superstars working for you. And, and you know, people really hadn't officially noticed it yet. The, 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 the promotions hadn't yet quite occurred. Um, that happened a little bit later. And, and you just kind of raise your eyebrows and say, oh, yeah, you noticed. <laughs> I got some good people working for me. And, and, you know, you said, look, you know, you told me, that I remember very clearly, you said, look, if you ever need two hours of my time for us to just go noodle about things, we, I can do it. And that was one of the first times that an executive director or senior person in an organization ever ever said that. And the reason why is because you had great people working for you, and you didn't need to be in their shorts all the time managing their work because they were so good they were doing it themselves. That yeah, was a great, was was a true, true moment of uh, you know executive knowledge. That's good. All righty. Well, we've we've um, <laughs> I suspect we'll have. Uh, have broken this up into two podcasts yeah. because of the length, but um, it's good stuff. It's a it's a big topic and yeah. an incredibly important topic. So thanks for sharing this with us. This is uh, great stuff, and I hope this um, gives folks some information to to think about over the holidays as they prepare for their the reviews coming up. We really, if, if you do this well this year it will catapult you next year you'll change your relationship subtly with your folks and it will remind you how important it is to gather data throughout the year and do the reviews quarterly so next year this time you don't even need to review this podcast because you're all over it absolutely and we're going to come back at the the beginning of this coming year and talk about performance management systems yep in a much broader context so that when you get to this point next year you'll be you'll be golden yep all right thanks, thanks my friend, friend. All right. See ya. Bye. Bye. All right, everyone. That's it for today, and thanks for joining us. I'd like to send some uh, thanks and appreciation to those folks who've uh, cared to leave us feedback on the website. We always appreciate that. We've got a couple people who've left us uh, comments on the audio voice line as well, so um, we're going to be sure to include that in one of these podcasts when we get to a subject that doesn't quite take up all the allotted time. We try to get these things done in 30 minutes, and if you've been with us for any great length of time, we're fairly uh, poor at reaching that objective, probably closer to 40. So um, we won't add uh, these audio comments to that. Um, In the meantime, um, enjoy uh, the holidays, and uh, we'll see you again next week. See y'all.